Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. On Monday, Venezuela's opposition-controlled Congress declared a state of alarm over a five-day power blackout that pushed the country further into crisis. At the same time, stories and photographs emerged of desperate Venezuelans seeking water from pipes tainted by sewage. As the humanitarian situation continues to worsen, the political stalemate remains, with President Nicolas Maduro refusing to budge and self-declared interim president Juan Guaido struggling to gain the leverage that might tip the situation in his favour. Where does Venezuela go from here? Our South America correspondent Tom Hennigan joins us later from Sao Paulo to discuss the crisis. But first to where else Brexit? And with just 17 days left until the UK is due to leave the EU, the drama has greatly intensified. On Monday night in Strasbourg, Theresa May secured what she claimed were significant legal assurances on the Northern Ireland backstop, only for her Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, to announce that the legal risk to the UK on the backstop remained unchanged. This evening, Tuesday, MPs are expected to vote again on the withdrawal agreement that they rejected so overwhelmingly in January, with hopes of it passing a second time seemingly receding by the minute. London editor Dennis Staunton joins me on the line from Westminster. Dennis, I hope your voice is in better shape than Theresa May's in in Parliament just now. You made the point after last night's agreement that if the DUP supported it, tonight's vote would probably go through. Today we've heard not only that the DUP opposed it, but also now the ERG. It's fair to say that the deal is doomed, isn't it? Yes, it certainly looks like it. Uh, One of the things that hadn't occurred to me last night, or indeed to most other people, was that Theresa May would go to Strasbourg and agree this deal without first checking that it was enough to change her Attorney General's legal advice. Uh, The last time that the the meaningful vote on the deal happened uh, in January, the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, had given this legal advice which said that there was a risk a legal risk that Britain could be uh, kept in the backstop indefinitely. And uh, he said at that time that on the balance of risks, and uh, it was a political choice, he would support the deal. But he nonetheless said that this risk was there. And the purpose of all the negotiations over the last few weeks was to enable him to change his legal advice. And so that's the idea being that, that would persuade uh, conservatives and the DUP to support the deal. Instead of which, uh, we were all surprised this morning, shortly after 11, when he published his legal advice. And although he said that uh, there had been some changes, and the changes that she, uh, that Theresa May had negotiated were important and useful, and he said that the, the risk was reduced, but he said, nonetheless, there is a legal risk. It remains the, this legal risk that Britain could be kept in the backstop indefinitely. And that then triggered a domino effect where, first of all, you had individual conservative Brexiteers saying that on the basis of what he had said, he couldn't, they couldn't support the deal. Then this group of, of eight Brexiteer lawyers, who include the DUP deputy leader Nigel Dodds, they said that they couldn't support the deal. That was their judgment on the basis also of his legal advice. And then the DUP said they couldn't do it. And then the European Research Group of Conservative backbenchers said that they couldn't support the deal. So that because of what uh, he said... Uh, all of the support was lost. And the ironic thing was that uh, you know, earlier today, he went into the House of Commons and he made a statement about his advice and took questions. And he gave a very, very good and very eloquent defense of the deal and said that uh, what had been achieved in terms of changes were very important. The problem was it was too late because his written advice had had the effect of killing any chance for this uh, vote to be won tonight. 
Can you give us a sense of the atmosphere at Westminster in the last uh, 24 hours? It's obviously been a very dramatic uh, situation has been changing so quickly. And, and from, a, from a distance, it seems everyone has a, a sense of how huge a moment this is. Yesterday morning, Monday morning, we started the day with reports that the negotiations had effectively broken down in Brussels, that uh, the negotiators thought they had a deal on Sunday morning, but this was nixed in uh, London, that it wasn't acceptable to Theresa May or her cabinet, and so that uh, everything looked very gloomy, as if uh, she wasn't going to get any kind of changes. Then as the day went on, uh, the mood changed, and uh, so we had this uh, spectacle on Monday evening of Theresa May flying over to Strasbourg, meeting Jean-Claude Juncker, and then they emerge uh, very late, around uh, 11 o'clock, just about 20 to 11, with the details of this of these changes that they had made. And these were uh, a number of documents. And, uh, and it looked last night as if uh, this was a breakthrough and that suddenly she was in with the chance of winning this vote. And indeed, that was the feeling this morning when we woke up. But that entirely changed as soon as Geoffrey Cox's advice came out. And so when Theresa May was just speaking in the Commons just now, when she was uh, introducing this motion uh, on on her deal tonight, uh, she says that this is uh, effectively the moment of decision, that that if they don't uh, vote for her deal and if it doesn't pass tonight, that the House of Commons is going to face a number of bleak choices. And specifically, they're going to have to choose, are you going to leave on the 29th of March with no deal, uh, with all of the consequences of that? Or alternatively, are they going to ask uh, the European Union to postpone Brexit and to extend the Article 50 negotiating period? And that opens up another whole world of uncertainty, including what conditions the European Union might attach to uh, such an extension. So uh, so there is a, a, there's a, a tense and a rather effective atmosphere, and people are taking the moment seriously. And you have seen a small number of Conservative MPs announcing that they had changed their minds, people who said that they were voting, in fact, people who did vote against the deal last time, they said that because of the risk that, uh, that, that not voting for it carried, and particularly the risk of, uh, of basically for a Brexiteers, that they might lose Brexit altogether, as they put it, that they were voting for a deal tonight, but it won't be enough. Could you just remind us uh, briefly enough, if you could, on, on, on the new, this new interpretive instrument that was attached to the withdrawal agreement last night? And that, that is the kind of the crux of the, of the matter, isn't it? Um, what, well, what there, there, are, there were three documents. Really. One was, uh, it was this joint interpretive statement. And what that is, is it's a legally binding statement of what both sides agree that uh, certain parts of the withdrawal agreement mean. And so, specifically, they were talking about how you would get out of the backstop. So that if, say, uh, the, if, if they were trying to do a, a negotiated trade deal and the European Union was dragging its feet, that Britain would be able to go to an independent arbitration panel and say, look, this, they're making this uh, backstop permanent and it's supposed to be temporary in EU law. And so, uh, you know, you ought to adjudicate and allow us to suspend parts of the backstop as they come into line and start negotiating properly. And so there were things like that in that, which were the two sides agreeing what what this withdrawal agreement meant. So it didn't actually change the text of the agreement, but it did clarify 
what the meaning was, and, in, and and so it has an important legal standing because you know it settles the dispute as to what what a particular passage of the agreement means. Then there was uh, another statement, which was a joint statement, which was added to the political declaration, and that uh, included some uh, aspirations about, say, a commitment to workers' rights and to uh, and, and to certain kinds of harmonisation in the future, and that was really a sop to Labour MPs who uh, Theresa May was hoping might cross the floor and vote for her deal. And then the third piece was a unilateral statement by uh, the United Kingdom, which was saying that their interpretation of uh, these of some of these mechanisms and of parts of the withdrawal agreement were that actually it would be easier for them to walk away unilaterally than was stated in uh, either in the text of the agreement or in the joint interpretive statement and to a layperson it sounds like you know, this is a unilateral statement it can't really mean anything but in fact in law and particularly in international law it means quite a lot if the other parties, like, say, in this case, the European Union, and including the Irish government, they said nothing about it. So they saw this statement, and they didn't say, this is completely wrong, and this is a, and we disagree with it. And so the fact that they remained silent meant that this would have some force in law if it came to some kind of a dispute. And so what uh, a lot of the people in the government were banking on was this unilateral statement, because that was what the DUP and a lot of the Brexiteers thought was in a way the most important part of it, because it went a bit further than the rest. And so that was the hope that this, that, you know, all of these things would be enough to move the DUP, and if the DUP changed their minds, that would change the minds of a lot of the Brexiteers. And then after Geoffrey Cox's advice, it simply wasn't. Now, Jean-Claude Juncker made a point of saying in, in Strasbourg that, that this would, there, would no, there would be no third offer uh, on the table. Um, can, can any version of this deal still be rescued and voted on again, for instance, if tonight's vote is, is a lot closer than the last time? Well, I think the point is, I think it's not going to be close enough. So, for example, if uh, you know if, uh, the, the vote last time was lost by 230 votes, and so if that was reduced down to 30 or even 50, then you might say that this deal is not quite dead. But if if you know if the margin only comes down to 180 or 150, or, you know, if it's still in three figures, it's hard to say that there's, you know, life immediately in this. And so there's certainly the idea of just going back to Brussels and saying, can we have another couple of concessions or clarifications? That's, it seems to me, is not going to be a runner. And so I think what happens now is that you do get into this whole new phase of what's happening with Brexit. And so uh, if the deal is defeated tonight, as I am sure it will be, uh, then uh, tomorrow, uh, on Wednesday, the MPs will be able to vote on whether they want to leave without a deal on March 29th or not. They are widely expected to vote against that, uh, although it's not quite clear what the government's position is going to be, or indeed, uh, you know, will they actually whip in favour or against uh, leaving without a deal, or will it be a free vote? And if it's a free vote, how will the Prime Minister vote? So all these things are uncertain. But still, what's pretty clear is that the expectation at Westminster, at least, is that MPs will vote against leaving without a deal on March 29th. So then on uh, Thursday, there'll be another vote about whether uh, you want to remain, you want to ex- extend the Article 15 negotiating deadline. And again, the expectation would be that MPs would vote in favour of doing that. But what happens then is uh, is something that's you know that's not entirely known. So, for example, Theresa May can go and ask for an extension, 
but it's up to all 27 other EU leaders to agree to that extension. And the European Union have made clear that they're not going to allow an extension over the next couple of months, so just so she can come back and try to get more concessions that she hasn't been able to get until now. So what they've said is we want a new plan, a new idea. And then there's the question of how long the extension should be. And Jean-Claude Juncker said that it couldn't go beyond the date of the European Parliament elections, which are, the, which are on May 23rd to the 26th. But it couldn't happen, uh, you know, it couldn't extend beyond that, or else Britain would have to take part in these elections, actually hold elections here. And so then the question is, do, does she go for a short extension? What happens during that extension? Or indeed, do the Europeans say, look, there's no point in giving you a short extension. We should really give you an extension until the end of the year or until March next year even. And that would give you a chance to work out politically what you want in Britain, maybe have a general election, maybe have a second referendum, and also leave us alone for a while. But that would probably necessitate Britain holding European Parliament elections, which is quite difficult. I think the other thing which is likely to happen, if they do agree to, if, if Parliament votes to extend the Article 50 deadline, is that you then get a number of other amendments, like these amendments uh, that were defeated uh, recently, uh, proposed by Labour's Yvette Cooper and the Conservative uh, former Minister Oliver Letwin. And what these would effectively do would be to allow Parliament to take control of the Brexit process and to come up with a whole series of uh, votes on various options. And so uh, one of the things that Theresa May has been trying to do all along and what's been so difficult about it is she's been trying to get a deal through purely on Conservative and DUP votes with a handful of Labour votes, whereas there is potentially another majority to be found, an actual majority to be found, uh, made up of Labour MPs other opposition parties and conservatives. But that would be for a softer Brexit. That would be for uh, remaining in the customs union and possibly remaining in the single market as well. And so that would change uh, everything because what that would mean, obviously, would be that it would solve most of the problems around the, uh, the Irish border. And so it would mean that even if you had a backstop, that the backstop would never be used. And so the question is, uh, you know, how, you know if, does Parliament take control of that? Is Theresa May capable of doing that? Is, is it going to be another Conservative leader? Do they get rid of her? Uh, do they have a general election? All of these things uh, have become possible now that it's like this deal is about to be defeated. Well, we watch with interest. Dennis Staunton, thank you very much for joining us in London. Next to Venezuela, where there's no end in sight to the political and humanitarian crises gripping the country, our South America correspondent Tom Hennigan is on the line from Sao Paulo. Tom, it seems that on Monday, electricity returned to the capital Caracas after a blackout lasting several days. That development seems to have made already dire conditions much worse for the people there. Yeah, the blackout has been um, a catastrophe, really, for the country. The national grid went into, uh, it seems, a state of almost total collapse, and uh, that had knock-on effects. So water pumping and purification plants ceased to have power, so there was water shortages reported all over the country. Telecommunications have been badly hit. It's very difficult to get a phone call into Caracas um, for the last four or five days. Hospitals were left without power. So we have doctors' organizations reporting, last I looked, 24 deaths of patients in hospitals that are directly attributable to the, the power crisis. And this is also a country where millions are, are um, facing food shortages 
and um, scarcity of, of supplies. It's in the tropics. The fact that um, the power went down meant that people were reporting that the little food that they did have was beginning to go off. It really has worsened and what was already a pretty dramatic uh, situation within the country. And while power has come back uh, to parts of Caracas, there have been uh, reports that it has been intermittent, it's only partial, and the authorities, um, Venezuela has been suffering from, from rolling blackouts now for years, but the authorities have always uh, worked hard to make sure that Caracas, the capital, center of power, um, and also home to about a quarter of the population, uh, that that energy there is given priority. So the partial re return of power in Caracas does not reflect the situation in, in other parts of the country. Now, when he uh, declared himself interim president in January, uh, the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, appeared to have a lot of momentum behind him, as well as considerable international support. Is it fair to say that momentum has stalled a bit? There, there isn't, for, any, for instance, any sign of major desertion in the military or, or of any appetite for military intervention from outside? It has come back slightly. The failure of the opposition's attempt to bring humanitarian aid from, from Colombia, Brazil and the Caribbean into Venezuela on the 23rd of February, that was definitely um, a blow to Guaido. Uh, he, I think, overestimated um, the potential of a split within the military uh, it stood firm and uh, blocked the aid uh, coming in from both Brazil and Colombia by stationing troops at the frontier. And they also turned back a aid ship coming from Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. So that was definitely a low point. He was outside of the country then. There was concern about whether he would be able to get back. But his return to Venezuela last week and and now the just the... the national rage uh, at the disaster of, of the blackout has definitely put the Maduro regime back under pressure and has been, um, uh, one wouldn't say positive for the opposition, but has definitely given them new momentum and new weight to their case that uh, the Maduro regime has long since passed its sell-by date and needs to go before the country's um, multiple and massive problems can be tackled. But that said, there are still no signs that the regime in Caracas is cracking or splitting off. And um, what defections we have had have been pretty low level ones, and um, particularly in the military, a lot of, of junior officers and, and just ordinary soldiers uh, scrambling out of the country. But um, it is also true that within the, the power structure in the Maduro regime, you have a lot of Cuban advisors. Um, and I think uh, many listeners will remember that after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Cuba went through what it calls its special period when its economy collapsed. And at the time, many people were saying, look, there's no way, no, no government could um, remain in power with this sort of catastrophe on its hand. But it did, and it managed it. So there is a sense that in uh, Chavismo, within the Maduro regime, that the situation is dire, it's desperate, but it's their special period and they're hunkering down and planning on getting through it. You mentioned Guaido uh, returned to the country last week. He did spend a week courting supporters from his neighbours in South America. Did, did that effort bear any fruit or was it mostly symbolic? I think it was mostly symbolic, but it does obviously help um, his cause that he was received as Venezuela's president 
by a host of nations, including, you know, important uh, regional uh, powers like Brazil and Argentina. Um, and that uh, definitely shows uh, his supporters back in Venezuela that uh, his, his campaign does have a certain amount of international support, that his claim to the presidency has been recognised. And I think it's important to, to emphasise this, that South America has a very strong a diplomatic tradition going back generations of non-interference in each other's events, uh, internal affairs. And so the fact that these countries have been willing, um, quite controversially in some cases, to take sides and back uh, Guaido is, is a significant advance. Um, but he was um, told uh, on that tour that there really isn't any appetite in the region for any kind of a military intervention and that uh, does mean that there is a certain uh, standoff um, that needs somehow to be um, unglued so that uh, some sort of dialogue, if there's not going to be military intervention, there needs to be some sort of dialogue uh, between the two sides, both of which are refusing um, to talk directly to each other. Uh, and if that dialogue doesn't take place, it, it just looks like the, the two sides are going to continues staring off at each other and really uh, the opposition's only hope in that case is that the regime cracks and particularly the military or, or part of the military peels off from from Maduro and helps usher him out of power. Now shortly before that effort that you mentioned to, to move humanitarian aid from Kukuta over the border, you were in Kukuta reporting for the Irish Times. You spent a few days there and spoke to a lot of people. Can you tell us about the conditions there and uh, what the Venezuelans you met said about the situation at home? The conditions along the border in, in Colombia are tense. There was a lot of, of military and police activity. Uh, there are huge numbers coming across every day. Some of those are fleeing Venezuela, um, but the majority are coming over to buy supplies and then bring them back. Everyone, though, you talk to sounds uh, pretty desperate and bleak about the situation. Uh, the majority would have been from provincial cities and small towns rather than the capital Caracas and other major cities. And talking to them, uh, you just hear the same stories repeated over and over again. Uh, wages are now worthless because of hyperinflation, which, according to the IMF, will hit um, inflation will hit 10 million percent uh, in Venezuela this year. So people saying, you know, even if they still have a job. Their pay packet doesn't even feed their family for a day. So they're desperate for food. Uh, they are particularly people with chronic medical conditions. Um, they are desperate for medical attention. They report the hospitals uh, entering into states of collapse. There are often water shortages. There are, even though Venezuela has the largest energy reserves in the world, um, there is severe fuel rationing. Um, because the country's uh, capacity to refine its own oil has been so degraded that they're dependent on imports, and they have now been hit by U.S. oil sanctions imposed at the end of January. Um, and the uh, the problem with that energy supply, I think, is also an, an aggravating factor in the blackout, in that uh, most of Venezuela's electricity supply comes from hydro plants, particularly one huge hydro plant in Gurdi, which seems to be where the problem um, uh, originated on Thursday that led to this blackout. Uh, normally, Venezuela, like most countries, would have backup sources, uh, uh, 
power stations that they could fire up then diesel-fed turbines. They didn't kick into action. And that would seem to indicate that the fuel shortages in Venezuela are becoming critical. So that's critical for things like making sure that water continues to run, transport and a whole host of other issues. So it's uh, every everyone you talk to, I think, was I thought pretty consistent in how dire the conditions were, how they were worsening. And another thing, there's according to the UN, there's 3.4 million Venezuelans have now fled the country. And in Cucuta, everyone I spoke to said there's a lot more back there who are planning to do the same if things don't get better soon. I do recall you reporting the detail of people selling hair for their hair for money to get get their hands on resources. I suppose that's an indication really of, of, of how desperate things are there. It, it, it's for uh, a lot of the people coming over um, it, it is a situation of absolute despair and they are the most vulnerable are the ones who come over the border have no intention of going back they have nothing to go back to and then they have no resources at all to move on to um, bigger cities in Colombia itself or to re- relatives who have already managed to get out and go abroad they're largely stuck at the border, reliant on soup kitchens, um, often sleeping outdoors, uh, whole families, elderly people. Uh, their, their situation is particularly grim and desperate. And then you also have a lot of people who, as I said, have relatives elsewhere in the region and they're moving on to visit them. And then the people coming over the border uh, to buy supplies and go back you know, they would have um, over the years uh, sold portable assets that they did have. Um, so electric goods, cars, motorbikes, this sort of thing. They would have brought them over, sold them in Colombia for currency to, to buy supplies and everything. Um, they said that they don't have anything more really to sell. They're dependent on relatives and friends who have got abroad and have access to, to work and, and funds abroad. And they send that back into Venezuela. Um, but the most desperate are the most vulnerable. And you do see, uh, as you come over, people circulation around uh, with placards saying, I buy hair. And it's often the first stop for, for women who come across pennylesses to cut off and sell their hair to wig makers for a bit of money that often will only last them a day or two. Now, uh, the US has imposed some sanctions in the last few weeks. Can you talk us through through those the kind of key sanctions and, and sort of what impact they will have for the economy? Well, the US sanctions are the first, which were imposed on the 28th of January, were the first proper move against Venezuela's oil industry. And Venezuela's oil industry is its economy. So Venezuela's economic model uh, even before Chavismo came to power, but it has um, intensified in the 20 years since Hugo Chavez became president uh, back in 99, is that Venezuela produces oil, sells it abroad, and then spends the money on everything else it needs. It's totally failed in a century as a major oil producer to properly diversify its economy. And what diversification it did have, Chavismo through mismanagement and uh, failed nationalizations and land appropriations, have pretty much killed off the rest of the economy. So Venezuela needs access to international markets to generate the income to to feed itself, essentially. Um, And the government's mismanagement of the oil sector has seen a large decline uh, as Venezuela has become increasingly toxic to international financial markets um, allied to targeted 
financial sanctions by the US, uh, principally against named regime figures involved in corruption, that that sector was becoming increasingly isolated and production was declining at a time when oil prices were also declining. So the government is generating far less money now than it ever did before. And ironically, one of the few countries that was still paying for oil imports was the United States and providing the refined products like diesel that the country was no longer able to refine itself. That has now been hit by the US sanctions. The original reports were that Venezuela was exporting around 40% less. Uh, that might have um, diminished uh, somewhat recently because India has emerged as a replacement buyer for um, for Venezuelan oil that the US is no longer taking. So the, the sanctions have had an impact um, on a sector that's already very, very vulnerable. But the country is moving. Its authorities are trying to find a way around the sanctions. And right now, India um, has emerged as, as a buyer. Uh, India bought 10 years ago a negligible amount of Venezuelan oil. Now Venezuela is the second biggest supplier of oil uh, to the country. So that's that's been a lifeline for it. But whether over the long term it's going to be enough to generate the cash that the new regime needs to, to stay in power remains to be seen. I see on Monday, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo um, pressed India to stop buying that oil, as as well as blaming uh, Russia and Cuba for for the political crisis. Predictably enough, I suppose. Is there a sense that perhaps only only a shift in international support and and a kind of a geopolitical balance can can alter the stalemate in the country uh, and, and perhaps perhaps ultimately lead to the military abandoning Maduro, or or, or does any change have to come from within? It's, it's very hard um, to get a read on what, um, leaving aside the figure of Nicolas Maduro himself, what Chavismo, uh, the movement created by Hugo Chavez, which is an alliance of various civilian players and the military, what they would accept for some kind of transition into power. So we've had a lot of uh, ideas floated that um, Chavismo could remain in a, in a coalition government where it will control the security forces and give the economy over to uh, the opposition. Now, considering the amount of current regime figures who are making huge illicit fortunes out of corruption um, in parts of the economy that they control, whether that would be interesting to them or not is, is hard to know. Um, but given that the, that the threat of a US military invasion doesn't seem currently to be to be credible. It would have very little to no support in the region. Um, that does seem to me to to indicate that some sort of negotiations here uh, need to take place. There needs to be some kind of mechanism to bring the sides together and organise uh, some sort of transition out of this crisis. Um, that is that is not really advancing at the moment. Um, the opposition had been burnt before in negotiations with the with the Maduro regime. We even saw in February the Vatican came out and said that it rejected um, a request from Maduro to chair negotiations because it said the last time it did it, uh, the government acted in bad faith. So there is certain grounds for the opposition to be wary of entering into negotiations with um, with the government. But at the same time, uh, if you're not planning a military invasion and if you're uh, not able to get the military to turn against the, the president, 
you then have to start thinking in terms, I think, of incentives for the regime to agree some sort of uh, transition. And that's not really emerging either. So there does seem to be, I think, a, a kind of a paralysis at the moment, even though events are deteriorating rapidly on the ground, there is a certain paralysis in terms of trying to find a way out of this. And I think, you know, Washington and to a lesser extent, uh, Moscow making aggressive bellicose statements or hardline defenses of their their own particular allies in this conflict aren't really helping the situation at all. The European Union with a group of South American nations has a Venezuelan international contact group uh, that's trying to work out um, what would be agreed terms for uh, a transition between the two sides. And they had a, a technical um, uh, group in Caracas for meetings with both sides. Very little has come out on the progress on that. So that might be um, cause for some optimism if that contact group could make more progress. But it's at the moment, it's hard to see where the next sort of advance um, towards a solution is going to come from. Finally, Tom, you'll be writing for us this week on, on about how the, the 2015 elections were, were a, a bit of a turning point uh, in Chavismo and in this crisis. Can you tell us why that is? I think uh, Chavismo had lost one or two elections uh, fo- uh, following uh, Hugo Chavez's original uh, victory in presidential elections in 1998. But on the whole, Chavismo was a remarkably potent electoral force, and it absolutely did have a popular mandate behind it for its Bolivarian revolution or 21st century socialism, whatever you want to call it. Um, But as the uh, wheels started coming off uh, the revolution, so to speak, you had increasing signs of um, economic chaos, mounting political repression, the co-option of supposedly independent state institutions by Chavismo. And the population began uh, to turn on uh, Chavismo. And the the great expression of that was the uh, election in 2015 for the National Assembly, which the opposition, they didn't just win, they crushed Chavismo in that. And that was a major blow to Chavismo's own self-image as uh, representing the will of the Venezuelan people. And almost immediately, Maduro started maneuvering to rob the opposition of their victory, uh, principally by calling for the election of a constitutional assembly to draw up a new constitution, even though Chavismo had only promulgated its own constitution uh, as recently as 1999. And the election for that constitutional assembly was was clearly rigged and had no credibility at all, and and the opposition would have nothing to do with it. But uh, and and also that assembly was while it's drawing up the constitution, of which there's been no sign of um, progress much yet. It would be the ultimate governing body in the country, so it would supersede the opposition's uh, controlled national assembly. And I think that's the moment where Chavismo, as a political force, shook off any pretensions of being um, a a democratically legitimate uh, player in Venezuela and became fully authoritarian. And that was as a result of the fact that Venezuelans, like I think most voters in in democracies, um, will not keep in power governments that are economically incompetent. And there are fewer more incompetent in the world than Chavismo today. Tom Hennigan, Sao Paulo, thank you for joining us. 
Thanks to today's contributors, Dennis Staunton and Tom Hennigan. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.